0: Your film is now ready to be shown.
1: Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Miss and disinformation are a problem for all racial and ethnic groups across every social media platform. And yet, there is much to be gained from looking at and listening to particular ethnic communities to understand how the combination of media, platforms, politics, and people play out, particularly at crucial moments for democracy, such as at election time. In this episode of the podcast, we're going to hear two segments. The first, with individuals who are leading efforts to understand and confront misinformation targeting Latino communities, and the second with two researchers at the University of Texas at Austin who spent the summer talking specifically to Latino users of WhatsApp about how the political discourse plays out in their communities on that widely used messaging app. Let's get into the first segment. To learn more about the present-day challenge of addressing mis- and disinformation in Latino communities in the run-up to the midterms, I spoke to two individuals
2: doing the work.
3: Um, my name is Roberta Braga. I am Director of Counter-Disinformation Strategies at Equis.
2: Uh, and I'm Jaime Longoria, and I'm the manager of research and training for the Disinfo Defense League at Media Democracy Fund. The first thing I'd like to do uh, is just ask you both a little bit about what you do and your
1: organizations. Uh, so, Roberta, perhaps I'll start with you. Can you tell us what you get up to there?
3: I've been with Equis for about eight months now, and what we do is really our mission is centered around deepening understanding of Latino communities in the United, in the United States. Our work is really a combination of public opinion research from the more traditional research side. And then in my department, we're doing a lot of narrative analysis and social media listening and monitoring. So we're monitoring both for English and Spanish information that Latinos might be engaging with in different platforms, including YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, WhatsApp, but also monitoring for outright disinformation and what we call uncontested communication or political propaganda.
2: And timing? Yeah, we do um, a lot of similar work as well when it comes to the research, especially around uh, elections. We sort of ramp up uh, and do sort of daily short form analyses of the major narratives that are out there. But our, our focus is a little broader we focus primarily on racialized mis and disinfo. So we do find ourselves working with folks at Equis a lot because obviously they cover racialized communities. Um, but DDL really is a network of organizations, activists, organizers, academics who come together to collaborate and cooperate. And we basically see ourselves as like the connective tissue. Um, We host a lot of spaces for folks who want to work on specific issues. One of our biggest spaces right now is the Asian American disinformation table, which published a paper a couple of months ago on narratives sort of landscaping that uh, information ecosystem. And basically what we do is we provide panels, trainings, um, all that sort of stuff to make sure that the folks working on and disinfo in their communities are prepared to combat it. Both of you, as I understand it, have a you know, experience working on uh, disinformation
1: issues broadly but I want to talk a little bit you know about uh, Latino population in the US and the spanish-speaking environments generally and what you see is a sort of peculiar problems that the communities you work with face and I don't want to say community because I understand of course that's a, a broad and uh, at this point enormous population um, but what are you seeing specifically uh, in the communities that you were trying to serve. And Roberta, perhaps I'll start with you.
3: Sure. So um, I think disinformation and hyperpartisan narratives in Latino spaces online are exacerbated by three unique factors, in my opinion. The first is really voids in reputable Spanish language news in the US. You know, there might be a couple of uh, official news channels that you can go to for Spanish language news. But generally speaking, those are very limited. The second factor is related to the first. Uh, It is the digital nature of Latino media ecosystems. So we've seen through our research that Latinos really spend quite a lot of time online, much like other communities do but they're primarily also using YouTube and WhatsApp for news and information. 47% of Latinos report going to YouTube on a regular basis weekly for news and information. And then the third factor is the diverse cultural nuances between communities in the Latino ecosystem, especially geographic and generational that are oftentimes exploited to sow fear and divisions inside our society. These three factors really make how disinformation circulates in Latino spaces online
2: unique. I completely agree on on all points. I would say that one thing that I do see being exploited is this like sort of lack of narrative power within the community. And that's specifically because we are seen as a monoculture in this country, right? I like I'm 100% behind disaggregating and understanding the community in terms of like not only country of origin, but also race. Um, Like there are so many factors there um, that are used as wedge issues that are not understood because this community, these communities are not seen as unique, right? They're not seen as any different. So that really paints a picture into not only how disinformers can sort of how, how disinformers view the community and see opportunities to exploit these wedge issues. Um, uh, but also the, the kind of news that we get covered in Spanish language, uh, media, right? That, that sort of permeates the whole, our whole understanding of who we are politically and culturally. Um, and also that has to do with political messaging as well, right? Like the, the parties, they're not really adept at communicating with communities except through these wedge issues, which there are right now, there is a certain political leaning that is a lot better at doing that right now than than the other. So that's where that opportunity to sow misinformation, mis and disinformation is sort of um, coming through. That does bring us uh, perhaps to what you're seeing in the present moment We're
1: you know, a handful of days out now from a midterm election uh, we will almost instantly be in the 2024 presidential cycle, like it or not. What are some of the things that you're seeing in the wild at the moment that are presenting a challenge to participation uh, or understanding in uh, Latino communities in the United States?
3: Justin, from my perspective, I mean, broadly speaking, Latinos in the U.S. are exposed to and engage with information and disinformation from domestic and foreign actors, more so than perhaps other communities. And I would point out that content from Latin America is really shaping their views right now in the wild. What we see is actually a lot of, I think, one broadly overgeneralization or even perhaps (laughs) going so far as to say, like, fetishization of, you know, how disinformation impacts Latino voting behaviors. I think sometimes when we paint disinformation as the crux of why Latino communities vote a certain way, we end up downplaying the very real issues and voting preferences and lived experiences of our different communities. And so I think over the last few years, as more people have come into this space, that has started happening more and more. But this remains a real issue for our communities. And I would say what we're seeing specifically right now a lot of is, one, a lot of recycling of narratives and false claims from the 2020 election cycle. So, you know, we talk about the cyclical nature of narratives. We talk about the ongoing buildup of narratives. And we definitely see that, especially around electoral fraud claims, belief in, you know, Trump having won the 2020 election, what have you. And so I think that continues to be a problem. And then I would wrap up by saying that we are still seeing a lot of false and misleading content up on different platforms that were not labeled or taken down, even though they may have been you know, verifiably false by fact-checking organizations partnering with the platforms. And so we do see that a lot of Spanish language, false narratives go unchecked. And there's this asymmetry, I think, in how tech platforms have treated Spanish language disinformation and other content that violates their terms of service and those equivalents in English. So that still does exacerbate, I think, the circulation of disinformation.
2: It's kind of difficult to really get a full view of the conversation because as uh, Roberta mentioned, like a lot of these conversations happen in semi-private or private spaces, right? It's kind of hard to get in there. The team at X does a good job of this, but like watching YouTube videos that are like, half an hour or an hour long is not a. It's, it's not a vibe, <laughs> if I can put it that way. But I I think from what we've been spotting, one of the major opportunities that disinformers have seen to inject their own messaging uh, has to do with uh, the economy. Right. And people's economic well-being. That's been like pretty huge um, and has been a mainstay since 2020. For me, I think that was like something that a lot of people were missing because um, it's not that exciting, right? But I, I used to get a lot of questions about like, what type of misandescent are you seeing uh, about for Latinos around the 2020 election? Um, and I would always try to steer people in that direction. Because for me, I think that's some of the most impactful narratives that people are being exposed to, right? I, I think it also has to do with this notion in, in our communities. I, I think a lot of folks in our communities share this notion that A lot of the problems that we have intra-community have to do with economics and class um, rather than race or anything else. So that's like a really entrenched space to be able to exploit. But for the most part, I think I've been seeing a lot of messaging that simplifies what's going on right now in terms of like inflation, the cost of gas, specific jobs, including jobs in the energy sector being cut, things like that, it's pretty similar to what I was seeing two years ago around the election. And it really does have that resonance because uh, a lot of Latinos actually work in these sectors. A lot of Latinos are actually worried about their economic status. Um, And I think some of our, our friends at United We Dream really dug into this sort of aspect of uh, younger uh, male Latinos who are sort of apathetic towards political issues, but are more concerned about like this sort of hustle culture, right? So that's really built in. And th- that's like sort of, like like I said before, it's, it's a perfect opportunity to inject the wedge issue into the community. And I haven't seen a lot of messaging that sort of is countering that. I haven't seen a lot of stuff that's like giving context to the economic reality. Let me just press
1: you for a couple of examples there. Um, You know, someone listening to this might say, well, you know, inflation is high and there are lots of changes roiling the energy markets and changing the nature of employment there. You know, and there are, of course, challenges uh, to the economy. What distinguishes, I suppose, a typical political narratives uh, around that, uh, which, of course, are fair game uh, with disinformation uh, in your view? And I don't know if
2: there are examples you might be able to give So it's a little complicated, right? I mean, we're talking about political discourse here, but I think when you get to a point where things have been so divorced of context and so divorced from like any sort of rational, rational political discourse, because they're sort of hyper-partisan. So examples would be that the president has direct control over how much you're paying at the pump, right? Conversations about how a political party has seen vested interest in in. Artificially lowering the price at the pump so that you could go vote in midterms. Claims that 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 the president's going to. Of cut jobs is going to cause a cut in jobs in in the energy sector and that your neighbor and you are going to be affected. Like there is no sort of like there's no economic analysis there. There's no complexity. There's no room to give alternative explanations other than, oh, it's the Democrats fault and the Republicans are going to fix it. Right. And there's also no room for for any sort of foresight right there's a reason why a lot of these jobs in the energy sector might be impacted right because we're trying to make a shift into renewable energy but that discussion doesn't happen um so it, there's sort of, sort of just a lack of context overall there's a, a oversimplification that is sort of presenting people with a false dichotomy and it's it's being it's being used particularly effectively
1: Roberta are there examples that you see uh, perhaps even coming from the left uh, you know you mentioned that Uh, sometimes information's coming from Latin America and coursing through various uh, media that uh, various communities in the United States are, are consuming. What other types of narratives are you seeing?
3: So to Jaime's point, Justin, I think this question of examples is a good one because the lines are getting a little bit blurrier between these two types of false or problematic information. But I would say that it's really important to distinguish between actual disinformation and what we call uncontested communication at Equis, or like one-sided political propaganda, essentially. So an example of disinformation that we might be seeing, you know, a post that has direct and outright lies about polling location or claims that ICE is checking people's IDs while they're in line to vote. And then an example of one-sided political propaganda might be, you know, something that Jaime mentioned around the economy, or in our case, where we see a lot is equating, for example, Democrats' economic policies to socialism, or saying that Biden is a socialist, or saying that Biden wants to turn the United States into a communist society. And I think that those examples kind of, yes, leave leave out context, leave out an understanding of reality, um, and really twist small grains of truth to create a very misleading framework. And I think going back to a point I made earlier, even though a lot of the disinformation and misleading content that we see in um, Spanish language spaces largely reflects also what we see in English language spaces, even so far as, you know, we see a lot of uh, narratives starting in right wing spaces in English and then being translated into Spanish in Spanish language spaces. So even though we see that, when it comes to issues of socialism communism some of these other things that might be more political propaganda those are unique to latino spaces because they're really taking advantage of again lived experiences by a lot of latino communities in the u.s who might have come from countries where communist dictatorships or authoritarian regimes kind of force them out and so i think yeah i wanted to make that point it's like to jaime's point the lines are graying each year that passes, but it's still very important to distinguish between disinfo and political propaganda in our spaces.
1: So those issues would be more salient to Venezuelans, for instance, or
2: Cuban-Americans.
3: Yes, absolutely. And we do see that playing out a lot in Florida, in Texas, more so even than in other states in the U.S.
2: That's why we we keep talking about sort of this like lack of of narrative building in the community, there's this huge opportunity there that's not being taken into account. And I say narrative because like, as Roberta said, it's it's but like the lines are graying. They have been gray, but it's getting even more gray. So we're really talking about like what sort of political discourse, what sort of discussions are people being exposed to that can help them have this wider context of what's actually happening in their lives right now.
1: You brought up uh, immigration, Roberta, well, in the context of ICE potentially checking IDs at, uh, at the polls, that sort of thing, um, which, of course, is not happening. We should hope is not happening uh, anywhere in the country. Are there other ways that immigration is you know, spun into uh, disinformation that you're seeing on the ground?
3: So to be honest, Justin, immigration and Jaime can correct me with with specific examples if I'm wrong, but largely the issues of immigration are co-opted in English language spaces and targeted more toward English speaking Americans. What we see in, in Latino spaces online or Spanish dominant spaces online are less of the immigration conversations and more of the economic conversations, as Jaime mentioned, because our research really shows that the economy is the number one issues for la- issue for Latinos going to vote this year. They are really worried about cost of living. They're really worried about rising prices, gas prices. And so Actually, even though I think a lot of us assume that immigration is one of the top issues for Latinos, and yes, it is salient, we see less of those conversations happening in Latino spaces and more of them happening in, you know, other communities in the U.S.
1: So it's used to other the Latino community in English speaking spaces. But, you know, as you say, um, is not the primary concern in those Latino spaces.
3: Broadly speaking, I would say so, yes. We still see a lot of disinformation and misleading content around immigration targeted at Latinos and even kind of attempting to divide our communities, right? Between those who might have been here for uh, various generations and new immigrants coming in, that's absolutely still something we see. But I would say that overall, those immigration conversations tend to happen more in English language spaces, yes.
2: One thing is this distinction that, I, that I've that i seen is that a lot of times the people who are propagating that mis and disinfo are actually Latinos themselves. So it gives that misinfo some sort of like perceived legitimacy, right? When it's like a Mexican-American man out on the border filming Immigrants Crossing. So it has sort of a different agency, but it's definitely targeted more towards English speakers. What do you think
1: coming out of this cycle, will anything change about you know the types of solutions
2: or the types of uh, redress that you're you're seeking from from platforms or from government in in terms of what we're hoping to see, i mean we're we're doing a lot of work right now with the FTC, putting a lot of pressure through these regulatory channels only because there's uh, the NPR that's going on right now where we're hoping to be able to help a lot of the folks in the network submit some sort of comment um, to sort of push the agency in the right direction. Um, But really, I think we continue to push these like, broader efforts to really prioritize users' digital civil rights um, and really to combat like what we see as surveillance capitalism, sort of position that as the central issue um, because that affects the ways that the platforms are delivering information to us. Um, So we see this issue sort of everywhere when we talk about platform policies um, and what we really want to change at the platforms. I mean, our overarching strategy is really to make it clear to regulatory agencies, to Congress. Um, part of our policy platform also targets the United Nations to make it clear that, like the issue here, isn't sort of a byproduct of the way that we're communicating. That it's like it's designed in the nature of the platforms, and there are solutions that we can implement that have so far not been implemented because it impacts profit.
3: Um, Justin, from our perspective, obviously we know that you know countering disinformation is a multi-stakeholder effort. And each different type of entity or organization, I think, has a unique role to play and a unique value to add. From our perspective, the social media platforms have an opportunity to expand their Spanish language resources. And we always say, at the bare minimum, kind of take the same actions on Spanish content as they do for English content. Specifically, they can improve machine learning models to better detect coordination and networks spreading Spanish language disinformation, hire more culturally fluent Spanish language moderators, um, make sure that they have effective integrity systems in place, and I think overall just increase transparency on non-English language investment. From the legislator's side, I think there's a role for legislators to play in sort of working with the platforms to pressure them to do some of these things. Um, But I think overall, something that we say at iKeys is that, you know, countering disinformation is best done by assuring that we are proactively putting out communication that's contextualized, fact-based, and culturally relevant, and making sure that those engagements, those communications are where people are consuming information. So to my point earlier, Latinos are often consuming news and information on YouTube, where they might be exposed mostly to um, these sort of like low budget news analysis or uh, celebrity infotainers or what have you that Really are filtering their perspectives through their own opinions and creating, I would think, one-sided communication. We have to make sure that these proactive communications from different actors are in those spaces as well, and that we're engaging Latinos every day of every year and not just immediately before an election.
2: And to I think to go back to something that you mentioned, Roberta, I think it, it is really important. To actually think about the media ecosystems that our communities have available in this country, right? There is currently no safety net for folks who are exposed to this type of information, to go get something a lot more, like more like healthier information somewhere else, right? I, I'd really like to also hear your thoughts on on that. From our end point, we have. Sort of this recommendation in our policy platform that uplifts local media, that sort of creates a fund for uh, the creation and funding of local media. But Robert, I'd really like to hear you, since that was your your original point at the top.
3: That's a really great point, Jaime. Um, And Justin, we didn't talk about this, but. At is part of what we do is also um, testing of messengers and trusted messages or trusted messengers and messaging. And recently we conducted a study on trusted messengers where we tested three messenger personas: a uh, journalist, an activist, and your friend next door. And the result was actually that the journalist was the most efficient messenger at lowering uncertainty and moving people from. Believing or not being sure that a false narrative was false, toward believing that it was actually false. And so, even though people report that, you know, there's not much trust for media or, you know, they can't relate to journalists, the institution of journalism still seems to be a very, very effective messenger for moving people away from uncertainty and towards certainty that disinformation is actually false. And so, to Jaime's point, I think. Local media has a really important role to play in that. And while social media platforms and government need to be doing more to kind of combat Spanish language disinfo, Building a robust year-round sort of digital media infrastructure for Latino voters and making sure that we're uplifting local journalists working with Latino communities is absolutely important. Um, Really investing in creating organic content, you know, online distribution channels, building trust with Latinos, and using trusted messengers to deliver accurate information to our communities.
2: And to to like a large extent, some of these projects are are already happening. There's a project out in North Carolina. My favorite one is a Timpano out in the Bay Area. They're doing an amazing job at listening to their communities, understanding what they need and then giving that to them. And they also understand the nuances, right? They, they know that a a sizable population in their community actually speaks a Maya dialect. So they publish and, and do a lot of communication in Maya as well. So like these projects have proven to have like results. it it takes a lot of work to scale them. It sounds like the two of
1: you are to some extent optimistic at the moment that some of these tactics and some of these uh, efforts that you're engaged in are making a difference.
3: Well, I think I'd like to think that I'm an eternal optimist. Sometimes it's a little bit tough working in this industry not to get carried away thinking that we're headed in the wrong direction. Um, You know, I'm also from Brazil and looking at the Brazilian elections right now and everything that's happening. But I think that Something I would highlight, Justin, is that, you know, I think we assume that people are believing most of what they see online. But actually, we did a disinformation poll earlier this year where we tested eight false narratives with 2,400 Latino adults in the US. And we actually found that the majority of people are not 100% sure, one way or the other, whether these false narratives are true or false. They're skeptical. The people who, Are more readily seeing and more readily believing false information and tend to be the more politically engaged folks. Um, They also tend to be more affluent college educated. Um, And so I think that, you know, perhaps it's optimistic that the majority of, of us are skeptical. We're open to more information, we're open to being more certain about certain things. And so I think that that point is an important one. You know, it's not we the Latino community is not more susceptible or more vulnerable. We are reacting skeptically to false information portrayed as true. And I think that opens up a lot of opportunity for us to talk about the future of this is you know, I think we've learned a lot in the last five years,
2: yeah, I think it really hinges on. Um, who's taking advantage of this sort of like narrative void, right? Um, and who really has that understanding of our communities and can really help us really work together and work towards our self-interest in terms of being an optimist. I don't know if I am, Justin, <laughs> I feel like, you know, we might make in- incremental success, but like miss and disinfo propaganda, all these issues have existed since like, since time immemorial. so, I don't think we're going to be the ones to solve it. And I actually think about that all the time when I'm sitting at my little desk doing my little typing. And I'm like, wow, like I, people think we're going to solve this issue. But really, what we're trying to do is come up with ways to slow down its effects and understand like how our communities are being affected. And I think like I really, I'm huge fans of the work that Roberta and that Equis is doing and really putting in the effort to understand the community because that's one step that a lot of, Miss and disinfo researchers do not do right a lot of them stop at the research, and they assume that everyone's believing everything that they're seeing, uh, especially when it comes to communities of color. And that's why we do the work that we do because a lot of the discourse that was happening before people like us were really entrenched in the field was really patronizing right so i'm i'm really glad to see that we're getting involved we're prioritizing understanding the communities that we're working with um and moving these conversations away from like anglocentric uh, discussions of solutions and anglocentric discussions of um who believes what and why you know so i, I in some sense i guess like there is a part of me that does want to be an optimist but it, it's kind of hard to say i think I, I'm uh, I'm skeptical but you know I guess I fit into that demographic perfectly then
1: huh <laughs> Well that may be a good place for us uh, to to stop uh, Roberta Hani, thank you so much for giving me a deeper insight uh, into the things that you're dealing with in your communities every day and hopefully the listener as well. so I hope perhaps we can uh, talk about these issues in the off cycle and maybe debrief a little on what you saw in 2022 uh, as we do go into. 2024. It's right upon us. So thank you both very much.
3: Thank you so much, Justin. Such a pleasure to share this stage with Jaime as well, a dear colleague and friend. Um, And yeah, lots of work to be done. I have a lot of hypotheses I want to test, a lot of research I want to do. So um, thank you so much and looking forward to continuing to engage with you both.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us, Justin. Always a pleasure.
1: With what we've learned in that segment top of mind, we're now going to take a close look at how political discourse in Latino communities plays out on WhatsApp. As part of a special series of essays on race, ethnicity, technology, and elections, two researchers from the University of Texas at Austin in the Center for Media Engagement and the Propaganda Research Lab penned an essay for Tech Policy Press called WhatsApp, Misinformation, and Latino Political Discourse in the U.S. I had the chance to catch up with them just as we published the essay which you can find on the site.
0: My name is Kayo Mimizuka. I am a PhD student and also a graduate research fellow at the Center for Media Engagement at University of Texas, Austin. And my research is um, around disinformation, misinformation on encrypted chat apps, uh, including the platforms that are very specific to certain regions and countries.
4: I'm Inga Trautik. I'm the research manager of the Propaganda Research Lab, which is part of the Center for Media Engagement at UT Austin.
1: Inga, can you tell us a little bit about the lab, what it gets up to uh, and how your research kind of connects to it?
4: Yeah, of course. The Propaganda Research Lab, like we're really focusing on how emergent technologies are used in global political communication. So basically... Um, how social media and other digital tools or other social media platforms, how they're being manipulated by actors to like influence public opinion, right? And this includes often the spread of mis- and disinformation. So the project that Kayo and I have worked on over the summer and other researchers of the lab as well was focused on different communities in the U.S. and how they're affected. But the lab has... Like our work is really global and international in outlook. So we've done comparative case studies um, in other countries in North Africa, for example. And our focus recently over the last, I would say, two, three years, has been on those messaging apps because we see them as being understudied but having high impact often.
1: And kaya, do you want to mention uh, your background a little bit? How do you come to these topics?
0: Sure. So um I'm originally from Japan. So my interest in this misinformation started from when I was, you know, before I came to the United States. So I was basically studying those phenomenon in Japan or in Asian region specifically. But then I came here and I joined the lab. And then it's, as Inga said, uh, the scope is very global. And I became part of this diasporic community um, project. And although I am doing this research from outside of this community, I, you know, we are not trying to represent those communities or we are not claiming that we are the experts on those communities. We are learning that all these people that we're speaking with are the experts and like we're basically learning from them. personally it means a lot to me because I feel like although there are a lot of differences in social cultural dynamics and complexities, I feel like I'm learning from them and eventually I'm bringing it back to my own community and it's kind of like building, it's like a way for me to build resilience together with those communities instead of just confronting this problem uh, in silos.
1: So, you know, you mentioned uh, a couple of other examples of regions you've looked at. Kaio, you've just said, you know, you're looking at multiple communities. Are there others, a, a couple of others you might like to mention that you all have had the opportunity to uh, survey?
0: This is more like my personal projects, and um, it's, it might be part of the lab project in the future, but I'm specifically looking at uh, this app, chat app called Line. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's very popular in Japan, Taiwan, and also Thailand, uh, but it hasn't been getting a lot of attention in terms of academic research. So I'm really interested in studying those apps that are not widely used globally, but very specific to certain communities and regions. And there is, I think maybe Inga can mention, um, or you've maybe done studies around it, but there is Viber, which used to be kind of popular in um, Europe, But I think in some countries um, in Ukraine and Libya, probably um, those apps are more prominent than apps like WhatsApp. So, yeah, we are seeing a lot of differences in the way that people use those platforms and how people perceive those apps. So, yeah, this is an advantage that we have at the at Center for Media Engagement because we have such a global scope. And also we have a lot of members who have different cultural backgrounds and who can speak different languages.
4: Yeah, maybe if I could build on that, the way we came to this research in the US has almost been kind of upside down in the sense that we have first looked at the importance of messaging apps in other countries and their importance for like spreading misinformation or. How people are also fighting back already. And then realizing, well, wait, all of these communities are also presented in the US, which is a melting pot. So I'm sure they carry relevance into the US with them, right? And that is what we found and that increasingly, thankfully, other researchers and also media have been picking up and one of the main communities where specifically WhatsApp is so important, actually you can't say one community, one of the many communities where WhatsApp is important are different Latino communities, but for this big research project um, that focuses on diaspora communities in the U.S. We have other researchers who've been looking at the Indian-American community in Houston, for example, where WhatsApp also plays a huge role. And then Chinese-American communities who uh, where we chat is just so important. And it always has this, like, dual purpose of, like, using that those apps to um, talk to people here in the U.S. from your own community or also other friends and create those smaller and bigger groups. But also, obviously, the second purpose is always to stay connected with folks abroad, friends and family.
1: So I want to drill in, of course, to the specific work that you've been doing around WhatsApp misinformation and Latino political discourse in the U.S. You'll, by the time this is published, have just released a piece in Tech Policy Press on this subject. And I believe you have a research paper coming out on it as well. Talk to me a little bit about your method uh, to, to go and look at this question of the role of WhatsApp in political discourse in Latino communities in the U.S. What did you all set out to do?
4: So methodologically, where basically where we started at was that we realized, okay, there's a lot of nuance that often gets lost. If we just look at one platform, if we like, you know, uh, do a survey where you can't have follow-up questions. So the way our team at the lab approached it was in a qualitative manner to travel to places. Um, Kayo spent some time in Miami and Florida and the places where we couldn't travel to, we would have long interviews with people on Zoom. So yeah, it was a qualitative approach like having folks from the different communities who use the messaging apps talk to us, very semi-structured, like almost being led by the participants and what often they see the problem is biggest or a topic that they really want to drill into. And as part of those interviews, um the, we actually had an approach where participants would also open their phone and basically go into their apps because we encouraged them to do so. And we often also had situations where they wanted to share with us, where they were just like, look at this gigantic group or look at this piece that I just got from my uncle. Okay, let's check out my uncle. Like he actually also sends this stuff privately. It always seems to come from the same. I don't know, fake news outlet, or at least outlet that doesn't look serious to me. So it was a, it was a very like, as I said, qualitative approach, kind of bottom up, kind of being led almost by the participants in the interviews.
1: How big is WhatsApp in the Latino community, diaspora community in the U.S.? Um, How important is it to communications?
4: It's extremely important. So we have some, I think the most recent polling numbers about like use of WhatsApp, simply how many people use it are from the Pew Research Center that we also rely on uh, or that we also cite in the essay that we have coming up with you. So that is like almost half of the Latino population use it like very regularly. And from from our experience with the research, I don't know, Caio. we have not really come across Latinos we asked that weren't using it, right? But obviously that was also one of our inclusion criteria, do you actually use WhatsApp? And then a second project that we have at the lab where we did a survey of Mexican-Americans, Indian-Americans, and Cuban-Americans, we were asking them, like, you needed to use WhatsApp to be included in the survey, but we were asking them, okay, if you need to rank different sources of where you see this and missing disinformation Um, whatsapp came second so the only other thing that came before was any other social media which people would still rank first but then came whatsapp and then came um you know online news websites local news sources um, and the other options that we gave them
1: what's driving that use um you know i mean clearly A lot of people use WhatsApp all over the world, but you identify in your piece a a few different sort of motivations or reasons why people feel particularly compelled to continue to have interactions on WhatsApp specifically um, that are cultural.
4: Yeah, so one thing that we argue and which is also actually a positive side of what we came across in our research is that the features that WhatsApp have, where you have end-to-end encryption and you can pretty much decide who you want to talk to or which group you want to be in, which group you want to mute, which group you want to leave. It gives people a more protected space, a more protected space on social media where they often feel like they're flooded with stuff that they actually don't want to see, where your timeline is driven by algorithms and you don't really understand what is like top and what comes like at the bottom of it. And when you scroll through it, it, yeah, just often doesn't give you what you want versus on WhatsApp, it feels you're more in charge of it. Um, and it also has turned into a space where Latino communities rely on, or at least go for and share some news. And again, that is more protected. It's, it's what we call a subalter counter public. Of course, I didn't come up with this term. I'm still a junior academic. We're relying on really established work by um, Nancy Fraser, who was one of the main critics of Jürgen Habermas, um, who came up with, like, you know, main discourse around uh, the public square and how social media features into that. And Nancy Fraser is a big critic of that, that she says, there's not actually one main public square that we need to compete over because that's always majority dominated, but let's see what else develops within societies. And the way we approach this, and I think that is quite novel, is that we see that with communities, but we kind of construct it around technology. So we see encrypted messaging apps as a main facilitator in this regard.
1: You uh, asked the question, is misinformation a permanent feature of interpersonal communications, particularly over these? Uh, encrypted or secure uh, message apps. Clearly, there's, there's a booming problem of disinformation, misinformation, particularly related to uh, elections, or, or that I suppose comes into most crisis around election cycles and other major events that take place. In asking the question, are you also sort of providing an answer? Do you think that um, the problem of misinformation in these environments is, is in some ways intractable?
0: Yeah, I would say that What we've been observing is that for those communities, misinformation is not just a phenomenon that you observe only during sort of salient media events, but it has pretty much become a part of everyday communication because misinformation is sort of creeping into smaller private chat groups as part of people's daily conversations. You know, like people use WhatsApp to check up. You know check check in with each other and say hi good morning and send memes and prayers but then that also comes with you know a bunch of links from youtube tiktok many other platforms and everything gets you know being spread on whatsapp so we what we are seeing or hearing from our interviewees is that there isn't really a boundary between daily conversations and misinformation, disinformation, they all kind of entangle together and they all come together. And one thing, another thing that we've been hearing is that a lot of the people we interviewed told us that uh, family members, friends, and sometimes church groups are very often the main sources of misinformation. So you would think that oh, maybe those dubious accounts or unknown users might be the sources of misinformation, but that was not the case. And very few of them told us that these are the cases, uh, but content often gets forwarded by the people they know very well. Um, So the fact that misinformation is being shared frequently by their friends and family makes it really hard for people to refute or simply leave the chat groups or like simply get off WhatsApp because this is such an integral part of their daily life, and this is just the main way for them to communicate. Shutting down those channels would also mean a shutting down the communication with their loved ones and families in and outside of the United States. So that really poses a unique challenge um, on WhatsApp.
1: You reference uh, your interviewees on multiple occasions in the piece. One is Ray, uh, of course a pseudonym, but uh, he's a 37-year-old Mexican immigrant uh, from San Antonio uh, who has talked to you about his use of WhatsApp in, in particular, a group with his childhood friends from Mexico. And what's his experience? What can you tell us about about Ray?
0: Yes, yeah, so Ray told us about what was going on in his one of his chat groups on WhatsApp, and as you mentioned, so he has this group on WhatsApp, uh, where he has a bunch of his childhood friends. So they've known each other for uh, 10, 15 years. And then so they would one of them kind of fell for all sorts of conspiracy theories, including flat earth, COVID related misinformation, QAnon related content. So he started kind of bombarding the members of the chat group with content every day. But, you know, they're friends and it's not, they thought, some of them thought it was problematic, but they kind of indulged what he had to say and they didn't really want to say, hey, can you stop that? Or, hey, you're making me feel uncomfortable because they're friends and they still like each other, they care about each other, right? But eventually he told me that about 10 people out of 15 to 60 members of the chat group were convinced to not get vaccinated because of this one friend who was bombarding them with anti-vaccine content. So that was kind of like a story that uh, really stuck with me as well, but I would say that it's not just an anecdotal uh, story that applies just to ray but a lot of other people we interviewed told us similar stories and it could be their grandfathers grandmothers sharing what they heard from their you know local church groups and they're sharing all this information about uh, abortion related misinformation covid related misinformation on whatsapp groups with their family and family chat groups are where you know all generations come together and you can't really avoid seeing those news content or you know dubious uh, links and stuff so and then as i said they can't really shut it down because this is the only channel for them to stay connected so that makes it really difficult for them to you know say hey can you stop this because they do love their family friends so yeah that is a very unique challenge
1: and you connect this uh you know it's not just sort of a problem around general disinformation, misinformation, COVID-19, et cetera. But you connect it to a a sort of challenge for democracy, which is, of course, uh, one of the key things that we focused on here uh, in your piece. Clearly, Ray, uh, Victor, others that you uh, quote from in the piece are aware of these phenomena. And they're, to some extent, telling you what they're observing of the groups around them. But, But why are these phenomena so dangerous, I suppose, to democracy? Is it just that people are Getting the wrong information quote unquote, um or are there is there something more there?
4: when answering this question, and I think it's something that we also in the lab constantly ask ourselves because our focus is really on like political uh, mis and disinformation, but obviously it often gets like intermingled with other topics such as kayo described. but I usually try to differentiate in like short term and then mid to long term, right? so short term and this is something where we are now very alert. And we have been seeing with regard to previous elections, we have some interviews telling us about some like, you know, immediate misinformation about some local elections and school board elections they had where just like even the voting procedure, how it is done, you know, is portrayed wrongly. So even if you try to vote, you actually might not do it in the right manner. Because on that day, you got a message via a chat app or something that like, gives you wrong information. So that's the immediate short term that I think we're always concerned about because um, having people vote in the wrong way immediately buttons our democracy because their voice doesn't count. But then there's the mid to long term, which I think now a lot of research also focuses on simply because I do feel like everyone has woken up to misinformation being a problem. So If you look at the more mid to long term, it's depolitization and polarization, which I would say the two strong like keywords and both depolitization and polarization. We have come across evidence with our interviewees, sometimes really frustratingly with some of them. Right. So if you have this, like there is kind of a danger if private messaging spaces like WhatsApp have kind of developed into the most important medium to stay in touch with family and friends, but then at the same time they're exploited for misinformation to the exasperation of some group members, then this can lead to like depolitization, just kind of like democratic malaise and discontent because this constant exposure to polarizing content to misinformation negatively impacts their interest in politics, their interest in democratic participation in the end. And at the same time, it can embolden like just, you know, undemocratic actors who actually quickly want to influence people or target a specific community with wrong information. So these are kind of the two main points I usually make. And we have, we have observed some really positive things like some interviewees who would tell us, often like, you know, an undergrad student being very aware of the topic of misinformation disinformation because they kind of grew up with it already and saying, I just always mute this group chant because I get so much bad political, like news and information one member always shares. And I specifically try to go to other news websites to keep updated. So that's a really positive example. But then other example of people who are just exasperated, who are like, I don't even want to engage with this anymore. Like, I just want to talk to my family and friends. And now even on WhatsApp, I keep saying all of this bad stuff.
1: You talk a little bit about in the piece, of course, how some of this phenomena kind of relate to the broader media ecosystem, the diasporic media ecosystem, Cuban-American communities in Miami engaging with uh, local Spanish language radio stations, others tuning into television from... Even abroad. Uh, So you kind of see that as another, I guess, mechanism where information comes into these WhatsApp communities uh, from these these media entities. But there's also, I guess, a challenge to understanding those nuances uh, and complexity in in the media landscape, particularly, I suppose, if you are a platform or any other type of group that is charged with trying to counter some of this disinformation.
0: We keep being reminded that. You know, there is a lot of complexities within the Spanish media ecosystem, and we tend to use the words like, oh, the Latino community, the Hispanic community, but this is really not that monolithic. What we are learning, uh, which I think is very important to keep in mind, is that each community has a very unique challenges that they're facing and their media ecosystem is different from community to community. And like you mentioned, for example, for the Cuban communities, local Spanish radio stations, they remain a very trusted source of news for many people. So it's not that, oh, so they all speak Spanish and they consume Spanish language news. So they're all the same. No, that doesn't work that way. Um, and it, it's really important to keep that uh, in mind. And what we are doing is to take into account the social cultural complexities by speaking with the community members instead of just saying, hey, we need more technology to solve those problems, what can can we do from top down? But I think this bottom up uh, solutions based on what people are seeing in their communities for their own communities is really, really important.
1: You talk a little bit about some of the methods that might be used to sort of address some of these problems, uh, including mention of some of the groups that are working on this. What are the bright points you see out there? What are the green shoots on this problem that you uh, think have have promised?
4: Um, I can start with saying that something that we have come across and that we argue and that I think is just also really relevant for the policy discussion is that breaking end-to-end encryption on whatsapp wouldn't solve the problems of missing disinformation because if we did that and basically try to have like a content moderation system on whatsapp from what we understand that would not be changing people's opinions and like believe in certain missing and disinformation they get especially here where they try to create kind of like a safer space and have smaller groups and they often stay like within their communities like, a WhatsApp driven fact-checking system would not really have an impact. So what we'd rather argue for is like a bottom-up system. And that can go by different ways, like either, you know, different people in the communities to like have an awareness and work maybe with researchers who build a monitoring tool. And they could actually look at that and feed that back individually. So that, for instance, would be one way. There are other like, currently existing, um, like WhatsApp tip lines, they, as far as I understand, they haven't been like picking up that much yet. They haven't been used that much in the US, but the like wider, I think the awareness spreads within the communities, the bigger is also the hunger to find something That is not like top down either from a tech company or, I don't know, a bigger institution, but rather like coming from them. And also, again, they're like agency that they feel they have on WhatsApp they want to keep.
1: Is there any downside to kind of looking at this community um, specifically? You've mentioned earlier, of course, that the Latino community is not in any way a a silo or a, a single a block or entity that within it is, of course, extraordinary diversity. But you, you know, you quote one of your respondents, uh, Rome, I believe, um, that it sort of feels like there's particular scrutiny of the Latino community, uh, particularly around election time, uh, because it's sort of seen as an important block that is contested politically, and you know that seems to have an effect on Rome at least in the way he perceives uh, these issues.
4: One thing that we came across uh, with the interviews, and that's also why I'm really happy we have a big team working on this and we managed to interview different community members like from Latino communities, but also Indian Americans or Chinese Americans. And there is some fear and awareness of playing different diaspora communities, different minority communities in the US against each other. So you want to kind of like protect yourself and your own community but you also don't want to enter into like a political game which in the end like every vote counts in a democracy or every vote should count in a democracy and hence like your vote and your community's vote is contested right so I'm going to make a broader point here, which I think is also important to mention, just given challenges we faced during the research. And one of the challenges was having folks opening up and telling us about some of the problems they see on a more protected social media platform like WhatsApp within their community, because they don't want to be seen like a problem community. They don't want to be seen, and they also shouldn't be seen as a community that is specifically susceptible to disinformation in general, because all of us, Uh, in different ways. We wanted to put in a longer quote into the essay and also wanted to reflect like, we need to be careful sometimes working on this and like, yeah, listen to the people who have something to say and just like have these community insights.
1: Absolutely. Um, And certainly the case that even though we are are focused on this particular community in this conversation, it's not to suggest that um, it is a community that is in any way uh, more susceptible to uh, myths or disinformation than any other community, certainly. Let me ask you a, a final question, I suppose, about, you know, responsibility for addressing these problems. I mean, clearly you sort of have an ecosystem perspective on this, that there's many interventions that need to take place at the community level, in the media, uh, perhaps at the platform level. But, you know, do you have any words for, for the folks at WhatsApp, for instance, you know, they, they're kind of maintaining this space, Uh, they're responsible for its parameters. Are there things that you think they need to be particularly uh, cognizant of as they think about how potentially to limit the spread of misinformation, especially election misinformation on their platform?
4: Yeah, I do think that's... um... Like we emphasize the like communities should be central to that and it should be bottom up and don't break end-to-end encryption. But at the same time, I would certainly not say to like take responsibility away from the tech platforms and like WhatsApp is part of, of Meta, which is a really big company and player in the space. And I do think there are like there are things that they have done and that can be done, such as like limiting the forwarding a bit based on metadata which has been a good approach in terms of just like kind of cutting down sometimes on like virality on some of the messages, which we have seen in India has just been like exploited by political actors a lot and inundated people. There are problems attached to that as well, because like metadata, what does WhatsApp meta do itself often with metadata? So, but that is one positive example, which actually was like a tech folk solution that could have only come from the companies in uh, terms of implementation, but also there are broader points, which we mentioned in the essay, which kind of need to just, we need to open our perspectives, right? So when, when WhatsApp is thinking about expanding the business, probably also about making money, et cetera, we've recently seen the increases of WhatsApp groups. Like I think it was 256 people for the longest time. Now it's 512 people. Allegedly, it's supposed to go up to over 1000 people in a WhatsApp group. And within the next months already, I know WhatsApp has been and has been planning to roll out WhatsApp communities where several groups can be part of a community and then there's someone who somehow is supposed to moderate that community, but it's also unclear how so I guess the bottom line that I'm saying is if you're developing your technologies farther, like think about different people using this in different parts of the world and how they might be affected negatively yeah, by certain changes.
0: I would add that many folks that we've spoken with are quite frustrated by how inundated those chat up spaces are with misinformation, disinformation, and they clearly think that there needs to be some sort of efforts. And they say that, oh, for example, on Instagram, at least when we see COVID related information, we see this like a little, you know, like a mark to say that hey this is information about covid maybe you want to check it out or maybe you want to do your own research yes. uh, and they're not saying that it's enough but also on those encrypted messaging app spaces people think that there needs to be more to be done uh, but at the same time they want to protect those spaces that are encrypted there's a extremely private chat spaces that they, you know, share a lot of private things. So that's also a dilemma for a lot of people. Um, But there's always this narrative pushed by platforms that, okay, we're going to work, we're going to do something to solve this problem. And one of them is media literacy. And I believe in media literacy, but I think at this point, the onus shouldn't be on the users. Of course, we can work on our own and, you know, we can try to you know, check stuff and like do fact checking or just be careful or just stay away from those dubious content or links, uh, which a lot of the people that we spoke with already are doing. But that shouldn't be the main solution. And I do believe that there needs to be more uh, done by platforms um researchers like us, uh, policymakers, and um, when they do that, they need to be aware that there's already existing mechanisms or solutions that those communities are coming up with, or they are already working within the community. And what we see is that these voices are not heard enough. And when we think about solutions, we should definitely take into account that there is already things that exist within the community from the bottom up. And one of our jobs that we can do is to shed more light on those voices, utilizing those unique positions that we're in.
1: Well, that certainly comes through uh, in your piece, you know, the the necessity of designing with the community and also your recommendation that uh, any legislative or policy discussion um, about regulating the tech sector or content moderation or, you know, addressing misinformation more broadly should also include representatives from these groups so they're their experiences are, are heard. I appreciate you bringing forward these voices and, and thanks so much for being willing to write for Tech Policy Press.
4: Thank you, Justin. Thank you.
1: That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin.techpolicy.press Or find us on Twitter at Tech Policy Press. Thanks to my guests, thanks to my co founder Brian Jones, and thank you for listening.
2: Tech Policy Press